1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23. This is the word of the Lord. Let us hear it. Where Paul writes, For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he brake it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you, this do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord that we should not be condemned with the world. Wherefore, my brethren, when ye come together to eat, tarry one for another. And if any man hunger, let him eat at home, that ye come not together unto condemnation, and the rest will I set in order when I come. Amen. We know the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his word for his name's sake. I'll be referring to various verses out of this portion we've just read, but I have chosen as my text the words of verse 26. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. Ye do show the Lord's death till he come. In these words that we read every time we have communion, we see most plainly that this ordinance comes to us with the express authority of God. For I have received of the Lord, Paul writes, that which also I delivered unto you. He says in verse 23. And this indicates to us, doesn't it, that this ordinance of the Lord's Supper was not something that Paul invented. It doesn't come to us merely as a form of church tradition, something invented by man. No, it was communicated to Paul by Christ. The same thing could be said here regarding the Lord's table that Paul says in Galatians 1 about the gospel, where he writes in Galatians 1 and verse 11, But I certify you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached of me is not after man, for I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. I think you could say the same thing about what Paul is referencing now uh, with regard to the Lord's table. He was neither taught it by man, 
nor did he receive it by man, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you. Now I think the importance of the ordinance is emphasized by the fact that Christ saw fit to directly communicate it to Paul in order that he might deliver it to others. One might wonder why such direct communication was necessary. After all, we have in all four Gospels the account of Christ himself instituting this supper. Why then did the Lord see fit to communicate it directly to Paul unless it be to emphasize the importance of it and the authority behind it? This is a divine institution, not a man-made tradition. Something else that comes out of these words of institution, and this is really what I want to focus on this morning. Have you noticed in the reading of our text that the believer is, in a sense, instructed to look in three different directions? He's to look backward, historically, to the death of Christ. Verse 23 tells us that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. That's a historical statement, even at the time Paul wrote it. So there's our look back historically. And when the Lord says, this do in remembrance of me, he is, of course, looking ahead to the time when he would rise and ascend into heaven, and his disciples at that point, in connection with building the church, would be called upon to look back to remember Christ's death. But then there is also what you could say a present-day here-and-now aspect to these words. In verse 23, we read, But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. So that pertains to the here and now. These instructions speak to the present, and they apply every time a believer partakes of the Lord's table. And then there follows a forward look. In verse 26, the Lord speaks of the duration of this ordinance. It's to be observed from that moment, from the moment the Lord instituted it, until the time that Christ returns. So in the words of verse 26, we're pointed ahead in time to the time of the end, the time when Christ returns to consummate redemption. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he come. I want to look at the words of this text this morning then from each of these vantage points. A look back, a look to the here and now, and a look forward. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, he do show the Lord's death till he come. Let's think, first of all, how this text draws us to what is arguably the focal point of history. Our text draws us to the focal point of history. The Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, verse 23 reads. Ye do show the Lord's death, 
Verse 26 reads, And so these two verses call our attention to our Lord's betrayal and his death. And we know, of course, that the Lord's betrayal by Judas Iscariot is what led to his death. This is my body broken for you, verse 24. This cup is the New Testament in my blood, verse 25. Or as Luke gives us the words of Christ in Luke 22 and verse 20, this cup is the New Testament in my blood which is shed for you. And so the Lord calls attention in instituting his memorial supper to the night of his passion which led to his crucifixion, his passion during which his body was broken and his blood was shed. And like I say, this is a key focal point for all of history. Everything you could say from Genesis 3.15, that verse that is generally recognized as the first prophetic statement pertaining to Christ that speaks of the seed of the woman crushing the head of the serpent while the seed of the serpent would bruise his heel. A reference way back on the dawn of creation to this focal point in history. Old Testament worship, you could argue, pointed to this focal point. All of those animal sacrifices in which you had the burnt offering and the sin offering and the trespass offering and the peace offering, all of those sacrifices, they all pointed to this focal point in history, the death of Christ. The slaying of the Passover lamb pointed to this focal point. It's no wonder then that Paul would refer to this focal point of history as the fullness of time. So we read in Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4, But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And even when we look ahead, prophetically, in the book of Revelation, our attention is drawn to this focal point in history. How do we see Christ in the book of Revelation? Well, we read in Revelation 5 and verse 6, And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne, and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb as it had been slain. Isn't that a strange symbolic uh, portraiture of Christ? Uh, kind of hard to envision. A lamb as it had been slain. But it's not hard to see that there's a tie there to this, what I'm calling, this focal point in history. A few verses further, when we find worship in heaven, we read in verse 12, Worthy is the lamb that was slain, to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. So this focal point in history receives attention in worship in heaven. Interesting to note then that this 
key moment or this key time in history, what I'm calling the focal point for all history from the beginning to the end could be labeled as a focal point of tragedy. Isn't that remarkable to think upon? The most significant moment in the history of civilization from beginning to end is a point of tragedy. Christ's death, you see, was tragic. Tragic in the sense that Christ was innocent. He had only gone about doing good, and his teachings were good. No fault could be found in him. He was declared innocent by the Roman governor Pilate, innocent on all counts, And yet how tragic that this innocent man who went about doing good, whose teachings were pure, would be betrayed and then arrested and abused, and his abuse would culminate in his cruel crucifixion. Uh, The cruelest way conceivable for a man to be executed. Now we know, don't we, that History is filled with tragedies. Indeed, history itself could be called a history of tragedies. When you consider the awful cruelty of wars, and it seems, doesn't it, that history is the study of wars. The intervals between wars seems to be very short. And... Cruelty abounds when you read the accounts of the wars. I I read a very detailed account not terribly long ago uh, of World War I. Uh, In my estimation, it takes the cake for being among the most cruel as well as stupid wars that was ever fought. And you add to that the cruel tragedies of nature through hurricanes and tornadoes and wildfires and earthquakes. And then bring history to our present day. We don't have to look back at all to find tragedy. It's all around us. And I think uh, without being a prophet or the son of a prophet, I can predict that it's going to be here tomorrow too. It's just the nature of this tragic world that we live in. You really don't have to go back in history to find tragedy. It's all around us through crime and murder and destruction of property and physical and sexual abuse. So much tragedy. How do we deal with it? How do we cope with it, especially when it comes to us personally or when it affects someone we may know and love. Well, I fall back on this glorious truth that the focal point of history is found in the greatest tragedy of all time, the betrayal and death of Jesus Christ through which his body was broken and his blood was shed. A tragedy of tragedies, you could call it this focal point of history. And indeed, you can say that the very foundation for Christianity is a foundation of tragedy. 
And because Christianity is built on such a foundation, we can also say that when it comes to tragedy, Christ can relate. And when it comes to tragedy, Christ can accomplish something glorious even in the midst of it. He accomplished our salvation, you see, by his tragic death. One of the things you know that makes tragedies tragic is what seems to be how senseless and without purpose they appear to be and how unfair they appear to be to those that are victimized by them. Well, the tragedy of Christ's crucifixion and death appeared that way also to the disciples, especially when they didn't understand it. I know I pointed this out, but it bears repeating. Uh, we have the benefit of the entire Bible, as well as thousands of years of church history uh, that aid us in our understanding of the Bible. So when we read the accounts in the Gospels of Christ's tragic death, we know beyond all doubt that this was uh, preordained, predetermined by God, that it served a very definite purpose. And I like to remind you that the people that were there at the time didn't know any of that. It all just seemed to be wrong and helpless and hopeless. It seemed to be the triumph of evil over good. That one who was that innocent, that good, had been that productive in all that he did, should then be apprehended by the authorities and eventually crucified. And yet, Christ's tragic death was the means through which salvation was accomplished. Our sins were atoned for. Our redemption was made sure, and the doorway to heaven was thrown wide open for any and all who would enter. So as we remember the broken body and shed blood of Jesus Christ this morning, let's remember that his tragic death is the focal point of all history from start to finish, and let's glory in the way our Lord brought triumph out of tragedy. But not only does our text show us the focal point of history by looking back, but secondly, our text directs us to the here and now. Today, we are engaged in the practice of observing the Lord's Supper. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, we read in verse 26. And the tense of the verb is instructive. It's a present tense verb, which indicates uh, continued action. So we could read it this way. As often as you are and will be eating this bread and drinking this cup. This is something for the here and now at the time the Lord instituted it, which was to go forward. This do in remembrance of me, verse 24, or literally, this be doing in remembrance of me. Again, a present tense verb indicating continuous action. It's no wonder then that the mark of a true church, one of the marks, is the administration of the sacraments. 
baptism and the Lord's Supper. I'd go a step further to say that the mark of a true Christian is that he partakes of the sacrament. Now, there is a difference among churches as to how often the Lord's table should be taken. That's not really specified in the text, okay? It says, as often as you are, uh, as often as you are and will be eating this bread and drinking this cup, but it doesn't say how often this should be. And as I say, different churches take different approaches to that. Some churches, and I believe even some in our denomination in Northern Ireland, meet around the Lord's table every week. The usual practice is once a month, I believe that our church laws bind us to observing it at least that often. They don't restrict it to that, but they do bind us to observe it at least that much. Interesting to note that historically, some Presbyterian churches in Scotland would observe it only once a year. But they would devote an entire week or longer with special services leading up to the observance of the Lord's table. Then they would have the service itself, and then that would be followed up uh, after communion had taken place with uh, things you should contemplate after you've partaken of the Lord's table. I believe it's very important that the ordinance be observed with great regularity. And for the very reason we considered under the previous point, the broken body and shed blood of Jesus Christ is foundational to our religion. I would go further and say that it's essential to our peace of mind and our assurance of salvation. It's essential to our sanctification. It's essential to our being able to maintain proper humility. The Lord's table, you see, is something that by design is very personal. It amounts to corporate and personal communion or fellowship between you and your Lord. And in that personal fellowship, you need to hear the still small voice of Christ's Spirit saying to your innermost being, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for you. When you've gone through the week and through your exposure to the world, you become defiled in a sense by the world. Oh, you need to be reminded of the cleansing stream of the blood of Christ. And when you suffer setbacks in your spiritual warfare and your progress in sanctification seems to be regression instead of progression, you need to be reminded of the greatest demonstration of Christ's love, his laying down of his life for you. And you need to draw motivation from that love. And when you are tempted to think you belong to no one but to yourself, you need the reminder that you are bought with a price and you are not your own. You belong to the one who loved you and gave himself for you. You belong to him and you are to serve him. 
Now note the words of verse 26 again. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you, you do show the Lord's death till he come. Underscore those words, ye do show the Lord's death. The word show means literally to declare or to proclaim. Many other English translations employ that word, proclaim. And here again we find yet another present tense verb, you are proclaiming, the verse can read. And here then is a sense in which the entire congregation is engaged in the same practice as the preacher. We are, as a body of believers, proclaiming the truth of the Lord's death when we partake of these elements. We are announcing publicly to each other that we believe in Jesus Christ, we believe in his broken body and shed blood. We see our need for his broken body and shed blood. For apart from his humanity and atoning death, we are altogether lost and undone. But with the breaking of his body and shed blood, we are saved. We are justified. We are redeemed. We are adopted into the family of God. We sang earlier in the service that hymn, There is a Fountain. You know that there are three different versions of that hymn in our hymn book. But I'm kind of partial to the one that we sang because of that refrain. I do believe, I will believe that Jesus died for me. That on the cross he shed his blood from sin to set me free. I do believe there's our confession of Christ. You are confessing that when you partake of these elements. There's what we're saying when we partake of the bread and the cup. I do believe. I will believe. There's my resolution, okay? By the grace of God and with his help, I will persevere in my belief that Jesus died for me, that on the cross he shed his blood from sin to set me free. So there's the present aspect of our observance of the Lord's table. We've seen it then historically, how it's the focal point of all history, and now we've considered it in its present aspect, the here and now of how we partake of it and what we are doing when we partake of it. We are proclaiming his death. We are professing our faith in his death. It remains for us to consider finally then, our text helps us prepare for the future. There's a backwards and a present and a future aspect to our text. And really it is this future aspect that drew me to the text initially. I suppose this probably warrants a study of its own. I'll only touch upon it briefly. Again, the words of verse 26. Notice especially the last words of the verse. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. 
Underscore those words, till he come. And the statement shows us that the ordinance of the Lord's Supper, as I said in my introduction, it is to endure throughout all of church history from the moment it was instituted by Christ up until the moment he returns. We are to remember Christ in this way that he's ordained. What I want you to take note of, however, is the reminder, the simple reminder that he is coming again till he come. He is going to come. He's coming again. Jesus Christ will return. Earlier in this epistle to the Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 5, we read, Therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord come who both will bring to light the hidden things of darkness and will make manifest the counsels of the hearts, and then shall every man have praise of God. Add to that Hebrews 9 and verse 28. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. He's coming again. Acts chapter 1, verse 11. This is in the context now of Christ ascending into heaven. He's leaving this world. Uh, his disciples are on hand to witness him being taken up into heaven in a cloud. And as he departs, there are angels. We read of them uh, in Acts 1.11, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. Oh, he's coming back. It's good for us to remember the truth that Jesus Christ is coming back. His return represents the consummation of redemption, that for which the entire creation including his blood-bought people, groan for. And we do have a longing for it, don't we? As I endeavored to uh, describe the present state of the world, the tragic state of the world, a world of tragedies, that does have an impact on the Christian to create within him an internal groaning for Christ to return. Now let me point out here that when it comes to the return of Christ, this is not something that we would want to think about at all without seeing it through the lens of the broken body and shed blood of Jesus Christ. The return of Christ, you see, is going to be a terrifying event beyond all comprehension. So Peter writes in 2 Peter 3 and verse 10, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heaven shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Try to wrap your mind around that. That's not easy to grasp, and yet it is very clearly revealed I guess in one sense it is easy to grasp 
in terms of the clarity with which it's communicated, but with all that's involved in it, it's challenging to comprehend. Peter's account agrees with John from the book of Revelation, chapter 20, beginning in verse 11. We read, And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. Oh my, a fearful occasion when the Lord returns. What a great purging will take place at that time. This entire world will be uh, completely purged and completely renovated there will be no place for sin of any kind. There will be nothing allowed into the new Jerusalem that defiles. And this, of course, raises an interesting question. How is it that you and I gain entrance into such a place of pristine purity and pure holiness? At our best, even as Christians, we've struggled with sin. We saw some of that this morning in Sunday school when uh, we read the account of Hopeful's testimony and how the realization came upon him that even his best efforts in this world are tainted with sin. You could apply Romans 7 to that testimony. I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me, and I'm going to enter the new Jerusalem, a new heaven and a new earth, the experience of Paul in Romans 7 has been our experience as well. The things we shouldn't do, we find ourselves doing. The things we should do, we find ourselves not doing. Can people who know these kinds of struggles and come out at times on the losing end of them really gain entrance into the new heaven and new earth when Christ returns? Well, you know, the testimony of Scripture is absolutely amazing when it comes to this matter. You know all about the saints at Corinth, I take it. You, you can say a lot of things about a lot of churches. A lot of churches have uh, their titles and their labels that are given to them historically. You would have to label the church at Corinth as the problem church. Here is a church that had so many problems, division and immorality, and the abuse of spiritual gifts, etc., etc. We know all about the saints at Corinth then, what they faced. Listen to what Paul says of them in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 6. Even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that ye come behind in no gift, waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall also confirm you unto the end that ye may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Did I read that right? I believe I did. That's not a word that appears in italics. That's a real word, blameless, in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
when I read the words of Colossians chapter 1, verses 19 through 23, uh, it moves me as it should move us all to wonder and awe and reverence and humility and praise. We read, For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell, and having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself. By him, I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven, and you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death, and now underscore it, to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. If you continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which ye have heard and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister. Holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. Can that really be true? Can I really view the terrifying second coming of Christ with that kind of confidence? Well, it's God's word, not mine. So I'm inclined to think, uh, yes, yes, we can. And it raises an interesting question, how? How can these things be? You know, Nicodemus asked that question, didn't, didn't he? to the Lord when the Lord explained the new birth to him. How can these things be? And now we read this account of being presented holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight, and it gives rise to the same question, doesn't it? How can these things be? And the answer is to be found in the elements of our communion feast. The broken body and shed blood of Jesus Christ. Having seen our need, having placed our faith in him, this is what we gained. You've heard me quote often the answer to our shorter catechism, question number 38, which tells us, at the resurrection, believers being raised up in glory shall be openly acknowledged and acquitted in the day of judgment and made perfectly blessed in the full enjoying of God to all eternity. I think that's probably uh, maybe the uh, favorite question and answer of mine, question 38, and its answer in our shorter catechism. And it's scripturally based, okay? And doesn't it make you look ahead with a longing heart to that time when Christ will indeed return? What great salvation is ours then? on account of the broken body and shed blood of Christ. That's what makes us holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight, our sins being atoned for, his righteousness being imputed to us. How the prospects of Christ's return then should compel us to join the Apostle John when he writes in Revelation chapter 22 and verse 20, he which testifieth these things saith, Surely I come quickly. Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Oh, it is 
what these elements symbolize that can enable us to look ahead to that terrifying time with great confidence on account of what Christ has accomplished. It's no wonder then that this is the focal point in history and that we're called upon never to forget it, but to remember it over and over and over again. We have a tendency, don't we, to forget things, to lose sight of how important and blessed they are. In fact, I have to frankly acknowledge my greatest fear for my own life and for our church family is that we take the blessings of Christ so much for granted that we practically count them to be insignificant. These are great blessings. These are costly blessings. These are blessings of which we are most unworthy to have, and yet they're freely given to us. Let's proclaim the Lord's death then profess our faith in it, that it is all our hope and peace. It is all our righteousness, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Let's close then in prayer before we distribute the elements. And let's all pray. Oh Lord, we marvel at so great salvation. And we find it no small wonder that it is the focal point of history from start to finish. For until that time, when Christ's body was broken and his blood shed, oh Lord, we were lost, we were doomed, we were condemned, rightfully so, and we were hopeless to do anything about it. And yet, Lord, you made glorious provision through a very great tragedy even thine own atoning death, that we might be rich in such spiritual blessings. Lord, we offer to thee our praise and our thanks, and we ask of thee now to draw near to us as we partake of these elements and remember our Savior, the high price that he paid to bring about these incredible blessings. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.